Previously on Storyological. <laughs> Let's start by, you know, accepting each other's definitions of who we are. When I finished reading these two stories, I was thinking about Yoda. <laughs> of course you are. Janine. Not literally, readers. Don't worry about me. I'm perfectly safe. Uh, acknowledging other people's viewpoints as valid, which are different than yours, can be very scary for people. This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerood. And I'm E.G. Kosh. We pretty much deliberately decided to do this episode based on stories we found in the Apex World Book of SF, Volume 4, series edited by Lavi Tidar, and this particular edition edited by Marvesh Marad. Both stories that we have picked this week mm-hmm. uh, have at their center women who are, are apparently mysteries. And much of the power of this, both stories, the one that I picked and the one that you picked, comes from examining the ways the characters in those stories try to understand the woman and generally fail so spectacularly. Six Things We Found During the Autopsy, originally published in Apex, uh, written by Kazali Manikava, an author of two short story collections, one called Things We Found During the Autopsy, the other, perhaps one of my favorite book titles ever, Insects Are Just Like You and Me, Except Some of Them Have Wings. Uh, yeah, and that in that title, it tells you all of the joy that's in her prose. It does indeed, because she, she proffers something that seems a bit odd juxtaposed together and then she just says something really true about it (laughs) (laughs) it's basically the format um six things we found during the autopsy it is in six parts each describing a thing discovered in the body of a woman those things are a playboy hidden behind her jaw ants floating up gently through her skin angels clustered and nested behind her heart and lungs saint sebastian tied to her spinal column typhoid a shiny black slab stuck to the back of her liver, and a playgirl spread across her ribcage like a placemat. So the story that I've picked, and I think these stories speak so clearly to each other, is In Her Head, In Her Eyes by Yukimi Ogawa. Uh, It was first printed in the Book Smugglers and then also obviously in the Apex World Book of SF. And like you say, both stories have these mysterious women at the center, but and both of them speak to different ways in which we don't see women in our lives. So in her head, in her eyes, deals with a lot of the, the issues around exotification. I'm just going to briefly summarize what happens. It's about uh, Hasek, and I, I debated that pronunciation, but that's what I'm going to go with. So I'm very sorry, Yukimi, if I if I've mangled that. She comes from a mysterious and beautiful island that the family and servants are entranced by, but she's plain, whereas they would expect people from the island to be beautiful and covered in patterns, and so she's already a disappointment when she arrives. But not only that, that she has this heavy reflective pot attached to her head and that covers her eyes. So only the youngest son, Sai, protects her from the bullying of the servants and his two brothers' wives. And the story follows the escalation of this bullying and how she turns it around from being an awful situation to actually her being the one in control and her being the one that, I guess, gets her revenge on on Sai and the sisters by using their own greed against them so that they, in the end, lose their sanity. I think your use of the the word where you said a a sort of or kind of revenge tale was very important because I felt like what I loved about your pick after I had read it and and considered what was going on was that the story was a revenge tale without any actual malice 
a kind of Cinderella tale where there was no prince or Cinderella and a kind of folk tale in which there was a Google Glass kind of helmet. (laughs) Like it was all built around confounding expectations. I feel like the story was constructed to invite you to make those comparisons, to see echoes and stories you've already read, Mm -hmm. to see those points of comparison and then smash those expectations, like to put forward a pattern that you think you recognize and then unravel that pattern before your eyes and show you it was something else. So like at the beginning, the noble that was kind to her, he comes in to rescue her at the beginning from being bullied. Everything she says in the beginning of the story is, no, no, I'm fine. I didn't care. And you absolutely read the story as what you expect it to be at that point. This is a serving girl. She's been bullied. Somebody has come and been kind to her. And so you take what she says of, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. as a deference to power. And what I love about the way that it invites you into making these assumptions is that it then turns around and smashes them, right? Instead of it being a story about how this nobleman rescues this poor servant girl, uh, it's actually a story about how Hersa feeds on this bullying and then, you know, is using it actually to gather information and patterns for her clan back home. And... And when she discloses this to Sai and his sisters-in-law, it is horrific and frightening to them because they don't understand what's happening. Their whole norm and power dynamic is completely blown apart. There's a point in the story where Hasa herself says about someone's eyes, you know, it turns out to be her eyes, changing colors and ultimately crumbling away. She says it was fine because she knew it was going to happen. And it's not that bad when things are predictable. And yeah, exactly. The horror that you're describing is because she is unpredictable to them because Mm -hmm. she's living outside of their hierarchies and points of comparison. And what I found astute, let's say. I liked how that, that poked at something that from when I lived in Korea and when I've listened to other people that have lived in Japan uh, about how so much of the language and society is built around hierarchies, built around the idea that how you speak and how you act is inscribed by your relationship with the person to whom you are interacting or speaking. The pot was such a, <laughs> such a cool, ridiculous thing because it went to the idea that the only way we can relate to this thing on your head is, is compare it to something we already have a relationship with. We don't have a word for the thing on your head. We'll just use a word we have. Yeah, so we'll call it an iron pot. Or or what I even love is it says in the story they tried to take the, the pot off. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Uh, which sounded horrible. and Such violence. And it made me think, did they ever ask her, what is that thing on your head? No, uh, no, no. And this right. gets to the core of the story and why it relates mm-hmm. so well to the story that you picked, right? Um, there, There is a quote, so I'm going to read a line from the story that says, uh, it's from Sai's perspective. Mm. And he's been kind of, I guess, trying to get close to Hasa to, to find out about where she's from and what she's like and, and more about the pot. And it says, in retrospect, all the questions he had asked her were about the island and not about Hasa herself. Mm. And that is the core of it, right? Nobody sees Hasa as a woman, as a human being. And in the same way, in the um, Six Things story, nobody sees this woman as an entire whole person. They just see her through these fragments of items that are left behind. And and we're invited to kind of be voyeuristic along with the, the we that is described, the we that is talked about as being the kind of uh, narrative perspective. And so both of those 
both of those viewpoints, both of those stories kind of erase the women as, as whole humans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think they, they both go at the idea of asking the wrong questions. Like you said, he, Sai, has the realization that all his questions were about the island, but... Also, all of his questions about the island were not particularly good questions. They were all like, is yeah. it true, this thing that I know about your island? And she would be like, no, no, that's not true. And there's a bit where he says, after he's asked one question, he's asked one question about, you know, is it true that everyone's beautiful on your island? And she's like, no, no, there is no place where everything is beautiful. And he says, oh, I, you know, I cannot imagine the life of your people. And she says, there's no need, sir. And <laughs> particularly when I was going back and thinking about it, I was like, yeah, yeah, that, that again goes to the what you're describing as the heart of the story. Because she's not being sarcastic or mean. She's just meaning, you don't need to imagine it. Ask me better questions right. and I will answer them. Mm. And then you will know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you, And which is just a side personal note. That is what it means when you realize your parents are real people. Mm. Or you realize girls are real people. Or you realize boys are real people. Or gay people are real people mm -hmm. is that they are real mm -hmm. you can ask them questions and then you can know them yeah. like the whole point is not that like that is the problem is imagining that they're so different they're beyond your understanding because as soon as you imagine someone is too mysterious or too exotic to know mm -hmm. you begin to slip into thinking they are beneath beneath understanding or yeah yeah and the the sisters uh, the sisters-in-law and sigh in this story the the kind of trap that they're caught in is that they are both excited by Hasa and also repelled by her and that kind of like powers this whirlpool that they seem unable to exit to actually kind of step outside and go oh yeah real person mm -hmm. let's just be like a, a regular human being <laughs> yeah yeah which uh oh yeah that is that is sometimes I think just the best tip for writing the other imagine they're real and then write <laughs> i mean um, that's the kind of advice that's amazing after you've learned some stuff after you've uh, you know had some interesting and valuable conversations with people who are different than you are in the, in the book i'm reading now called uh, she came to stay by simone de beauvoir it's interesting because now i realize that you're describing the horror in this short story of how this person defied their expectations mm -hmm. basically by being real and like having a purpose for being there that was just different from what they thought right. uh, is in is in Simone de Beauvoir's book. This she she describes in explicit language the horror of realizing that this woman that had come into her and her lover's life was a real person with a real conscience mm -hmm. that was against hers. That like this this other person existed with a whole other conscience, a whole other value system that was against what she believed in. And it, like, it completely like threw her out of her life. Uh, yeah, it's really exciting. Um, uh, like we, we like meeting a Trump supporter and realizing that somehow they, they are also too real. Yeah, yeah, a bit. And that is the horror to me of, of that is the fact that the Trump and his supporters are, are viewed in the same way that Sai and the, the elder and younger wife view Hasa as, as this mysterious strange unknowable force mm -hmm. when if if you just 
go up and talk to a Trump supporter and imagine they're a human being that have a reason for why they're doing what they're doing mm -hmm. and ask them and listen to them, you will have a very, be very different viewpoint. And you might actually be more horrified because you'll realize they have reasoning for what they believe <laughs> yeah. and you'll have to engage with it rather than imagine that they're... Right, and engage with a way of reasoning that is perhaps different to your own and frightening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Acknowledging and powerful. Acknowledging other people's viewpoints as valid, which are different than yours, can be very scary for people. It makes me think about Horace and Pete, uh, the Louis C.K. show that we have been eagerly devouring every week. There is um, a conversation, and I think the first episode between a Republican and a Democrat, and they are insulting each other across the bar. And then a guy walks in between them and says, "Okay, look, let's just start by, uh, you know, how would you, Mr. Democrat, define yourself as a Democrat?" And then he explains it, and it seems very reasonable. And he says the same to the Republican: "How would you define yourself?" And he said, "Well, let's." Let's start by, you know, accepting each other's definitions of who we are. Yeah, exactly. Oh exactly. God, so and powerful. Yeah, that is, that is absolutely what doesn't happen in these stories and doesn't happen mostly, mm -hmm. maybe in life, is we don't accept the definitions that other people have of themselves. We feel that it is our duty or our prerogative to be able to define other people for them. The, it can be exhausting when you're somebody who belongs to a marginalized part of society to have to keep redefining yourself for other people to be able to to have that and and it is something that happens again and again and again and and sometimes you just want to be in a place where you're like I don't need to hang out my shingle so that you guys can see me for who I am if Hasa had had defined herself the way that other people defined her it would have been fine I, w I was thinking when you said redefining redefining that like yeah, part of part of the exhaustion probably comes from feeling like um the the standard the stereotypical or exotic definition and it is kind of the only doorway that is opened for you mm -hmm. to go through which you don't have to open for yourself like they're, they're always willing you know come on the panel and talk about diversity come mm -hmm. on the panel and talk about how hard it is to be a South Asian person, you know, in, in literature, come on the panel and talk about what it's been like to be a gay person. Come on the panel and talk about what it's been like to be a black woman in America. Mm -hmm. um, what you were saying about not accepting other people's definitions for themselves, the story, six things we found during the autopsy, it was so clearly to me about, you know, them trying to understand this woman and being entirely presumptuous, the idea that they can know the soul of a woman and perhaps even what's best for her, mm -hmm. simply by examining her dead body and the things that it happens to be carrying around inside it. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes this great, glorious condemnation of presumption, and particularly the presumption that you can define someone else's being without allowing them to have a voice. When I finished reading these two stories, I was thinking about Yoda. Of course you are. And, and Yoda says this thing to Luke in Empire Strikes Back. He says to Luke that you have to unlearn what you have learned. And I think so much of realizing that other people in the world, not you, are real. Mm -hmm. And so much of, like in these stories, what's been denied the characters at the center, which is to just be listened to and just be allowed to define who they are, is because people are unwilling to unlearn what they have mm -hmm. learned and they feel entirely more comfortable sticking to the patterns they know, which is why I really loved what Hasse's mission is. Mm. And she's like, 
My island needs new patterns. I, I am the person that creates the patterns. And in order to get the patterns out of my head, I don't need to look at old patterns. I need to look at new patterns. The only、mm-hmm. way to get the patterns outside of my head is to pull new patterns from other places. The times I feel worst are the times when I struggle to empathize with people, and all I can see is the rest of humanity as this sort of giant, pulsating glob of otherness. And, and what, what brings me out of those, those periods is usually small, specific moments of connection with, well, often it's in books, but sometimes it's with real human beings too.、Mm-hmm. Um, And, and that leads me back to the place where I can remember that everyone is an individual with their own individual experience, and that is a joyful thing. So, six things we found during the autopsy I found to be funny and grotesque, confounding and gorgeous. It is a story in six parts. <laughs> and so, it seems much like. Um, much like in her head and in her eyes, it's laying itself out like, oh, this is the story it is. This is a story about six things we found during the autopsy. It is in six parts. Don't worry. Nothing strange will happen. <laughs> everything... When in fact, everything strange happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is so weird and so wonderful.、Oh, yeah. Can I just read you the section of where they introduce the angel or where she introduces the angels? Because it's. Uh, it's the whole story refract- refracted in a couple of sentences. The angels were clustered and nested behind her heart and lungs. They had to be pulled out with tweezers, which was not easy because they kept hanging on to her esophagus with their angry fingers and teeth. Oh my god, when I read that, I was full of shivers and excitement and thrills and horror and. That、yeah. is what this story does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can just talk about those two lines for a second <laughs>、yeah. because one of the things I love in the story are, is, is the imagery. The imagery rips you apart, like, it, it is striking. So, the image of, of those angels holding on and not wanting to leave the body of this woman、mm-hmm. is so rich and amazing.、Yeah. And also, the juxtaposition of images. So, happily taking an image that you think you know and imbuing it with things. That defy what you know.、Mm-hmm. So you think you know what angels are,、mm-hmm. and then you imagine them with teeth and fingers and, and this mighty grip,、mm-hmm. and it, it forces you, hopefully, to unlearn what you have learned.、Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what I loved about, the, about Six Things, is because moments like that continually. Joyfully, like a cannon shot, they shoot me out of my body、What? into a different perspective on the story and the world and on language and on people over I, and over again. I was trying to, I was trying to capture what, what reading this story felt like. And the closest I got was it's like running on one of those moving walkways at the airport where you can't really believe how fast and how far you're going with a single step. And yet you feel like some kind of Superman, you know, like. Ah,、oh, this is amazing! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Some, some short stories I do read for a narrative. Some short stories I happily read as more poetry than prose. I don't need my stories to be stories in any way other than to have characters in a beginning, middle, and end,、mm. <laughs> which is the definition of a story. And yet.、Um, well, this story, with its six parts, it starts and ends with pornography. And so it starts out the first thing they find in her, in her body is a playboy. And、yeah. the last thing they find in her body is a playgirl. 
And both of these are defaced, right? So the first one is already defaced when they take it out of her body. There are alarm clocks pasted over the women's breasts. Yeah, and it's like, what? Boobies? <laughs> what alarming boobies, yeah. Terrible, yeah, yeah. terrible, wonderful joke to start off with. Yeah. And But then the play girl at the end, the the people, the we of the story, the narrator, they stick husky heads over the men's faces. And, you know... I spent quite some time after reading this story trying to figure out what did that mean? This circular but yet growing kind of narrative that it had gone into. You've just described what makes it a story (laughs) and what makes all stories stories as they must both be circular and growing, which I, I, I will happily note was a realization I had at one point as a young boy that that is how the earth and the solar system moves it's that we were inscribing circles that are Mm. forever expanding outward into unknown parts of space so that's how i think of stories um and i'm still i'm still not sure what it means but i'm certainly sure that i want to think about it probably every day for the rest of the month i think it's happily i had not come to a decision or or an imagination of what it might mean until hearing you describe it again Mm. which was i had because I love lists, and this is a story of lists, made my own sets of lists about the story. I had written down the things that they decided and imagined the woman to be throughout the story. For example, they, they thought she must be stoic, medically marvelous, gay, a friend to ants, or possibly a site of conquest of an <laughs> ant colony. They weren't sure. Probably a closeted Catholic, more into angels than Jesus. Maybe conflicted sexually due to the playboy and playgirl they found. Um, what I read the, read the ending as now, that that moment where they deface the pornography, mm-hmm. is that actually the escalation that has been happening in the story has been the presumptiveness of these autopsiers mm-hmm. to believe in their own imagination about mm-hmm. what's happening. So when they first start taking things out, like the playboy that's defaced, they say things like, you know, we couldn't really be sure if she had done this to the magazine or someone else had done this to the magazine. And when they're looking at the ants, they think, well, did the ants come here before she was dead? Why are they still here now that she's dead? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I don't really know. And then when you get to the end of the story, they, they, they have just continued on and through their own kind of, of act of, of, of dismembering this woman and um, and pulling her apart mm. and examining each part separate from her, which is why I love the angels holding on because mm. like it, they, taking the angels out and looking at them is not going to tell you anything about the woman because anyway they're they're a part of her it's all a part of her mm. um, is that is that so at the at the end where they they find the the playgirl and they deface it mm. that is the height of now inscribing their definition of her or their definition of things onto what is there. They are making their imagination manifest in the woman. Right. They're trying not just to imagine, you know, who is she and what did she do, but now we're going to try and emulate that kind of action by by defacing this magazine. Right, right. And at the end of the first part, they imagine maybe she had a secret crush on us, Mm. but they know in their hearts that they didn't. But then by the end of the story, they are now back imagining what they could Mm. have been for this woman but not even doubting it. They're like, we totally could have been, you know, an awesome friend who helped her come out of the closet about how she liked women. One of the things that Kazali has done in this story is write something that is fun and beautiful and exciting and weird to read and yet leaves you with a sense of 
deep, deep discomfort that that you and have probably objectified women in the past, probably not seen them as real people, and that this makes you kind of examine that in your own self. Yeah, yeah. I I love the first person plural. It's not used enough. It, 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 I, can't, it, I can't think of another. Um, Faulkner wrote a story. um uh yeah faulkner wrote a story uh yeah it uh rarely have i read a story where a woman was more literally objectified Mm. such as in this case where she is is just a collection of objects Mm -hmm. in trying to make sense of why this story that was so strange felt so powerful i kind of thought it was like looking at somebody who you might be falling in love with through a kaleidoscope and in all of those different fragments, you feel like maybe you learn something new about them, even though you're not seeing them as a whole. And that was kind of how I felt about about myself and my viewpoints and my my position in society almost from just these what eight hundred words. So clever. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, because you totally can have an image of the woman. You you totally can from this uh, kaleidoscope is perfect. Look at these separate objects and and imagine something about her. Uh, you just better not imagine that it's right. I was thinking about how the what, what I felt when I had finished it was I felt cleansed and burnt out and kind of cast back upon the shores of humanity. Sad, yes, sad, yes, but also feeling delighted at the gift of feeling. Like like what what for me is I always am so excited with being punched in the face again with the the infinite complexity of life i kind of have no greater joy than feeling like i can see and be at peace with the the infinite complexity of of people and things and it's why like i just just even the juxtaposition of the categories of images and the story and things of pornography and insects and saints and angels and typhoid. I love dismembering things into parts and then not imagining... Not literally, readers. Don't worry about me. I'm perfectly safe. Uh, well, as, as a child, I, I took apart most every electronic device once I had moved beyond it or it had, it had broken. Usually, usually it had broken. No, always it had broken. <laughs> That is, right there, Emma, that is the the dividing line between a possible one day serial killer mm. and just a curious person is, do you, you deliberately break your watch so that then you can take it apart? Or do you wait for it to die on its own accord and then take it apart? Now, granted, <laughs> with human beings, this would still be seen as problematic (laughs) (laughs) is it is it ender's game where his brother kills a lot of wildlife and pins it out for for like Uh, dismemberment and inspection i would not be surprised i would i would not be surprised um oh one of the things that i wanted to say about the story that i enjoyed about the presumptiveness of the people and the way that the way that she she inscribed it is that there was a point where while they were thinking about the ants they found an abnormally thick spider web under her pancreas but they decided not to bother with it because it probably didn't have anything to do with the ants and i was like whoa there there is a moment where you have glimpsed something that mm-hmm. you can't even begin to understand so what you do is you retreat and go back to looking at things that no matter how strange they are at least they already fit in categories that you understand so it's like there are angels in her we know what angels are mm-hmm. there are ants in her 
okay, so answered whatever. Somehow that is more understandable than and the that, fake spider that, web. That speaks to marginalized people only having acceptable narratives, right? So even right, it's it's obvious that we yeah. we see less stories and share less stories by and about marginalized people. But then even when we do, right, there are stories that are quote unquote acceptable, right? The African narratives around war and famine and slavery uh, slavery right the i i don't know i can't think of any other. um uh geishas geishas are good give give me a memoirs of a geisha i'll give you an oscar nominated film <laughs> um give me the story of a girl on a bicycle uh that probably does not get nominated i couldn't mm-hmm. think of what the name of the movie was but it, it does not get nominated uh, oh yeah, give me your cultural revolution stories of of China during the cultural revolution. Mm-hmm. A plus, acceptable. That's acceptable. Stories of of uh, the Korean War, acceptable. And so, um, and so, with one line, this story just pokes right into that that soft spot and just says, "Look how ridiculous this is." Yeah, and but none of it none of it would be worth worth it without language that kind of defies the nature of the story itself. You know what I mean? No, none of it would be worth it if the story itself did not confound its own expectation, if the story itself did not, did not delight in not knowing what it was talking about sometimes. Mm-hmm. So like the lines like the, the angels sounded like prehistoric birds that were heartbroken because they were going to die in the evening. <laughs> or or even just the amazingness of allowing the, the first-person plural to have thoughts like this, which was, after they had pulled out the angels and discovered St. Sebastian, they imagined that the angels and St. Sebastian were probably good friends. We imagined them hanging out in the late afternoon, folding discarded angel wings into boats and sailing them on her bloodstream, hoping they would return filled with things that were sweet and useful. For people that come to stories in to some extent to be comforted or to see familiar patterns, mm-hmm. both of these stories take you one that. step one step into a pattern you're familiar with and then just it just tear them, tear it up, tear it up. Hey, here's a new pattern, here's a new pattern, here's a new pattern. You think you know what it is now. One of the things that I hope this podcast does is um flag up some really interesting stories that do take a little bit of a different approach that so encourage people to read things they may not have read before and feel like they're already in dialogue with us you know they can hit us up on twitter or just by listening to what we say can think about the stories maybe a little bit differently yeah i'm excited about doing this podcast because it can broaden our conversations and hopefully yeah you know spark other conversations with people out there that we've never met um, and that, you know, that's the exciting, scary thing about doing a podcast <laughs> is imagining people you've never met listening to you and much like the characters in Six Things, kind of just picking apart things that you say and holding them up and going, oh, they must be these kinds of people. <laughs> oh, they must be these kinds of people. Well, yeah, everything I said about what I wanted for readers to be inspired to to pick up different stories is, is absolutely true for me as well. Like, I already now read far more widely in the short stories these stories were really exciting to talk about and really exciting to talk about together it's amazing that feeling inspired when i heard that you were reading the world book and really enjoying it uh 
is that in picking these stories without talking to each other about what stories we were picking, we, we ended up picking two stories that went together so well and to some extent seem to embody what you want to be embodied in a giant book of SF that is meant to cover the whole world, which mm-hmm. is the whole purpose of this book and these stories is to, is to get you to unlearn what you have learned, to get you to see with new eyes and mm-hmm. be more open to questioning things and people and listening to what they say. Yeah, I think I think this book does that in a very wonderful way. And I would highly recommend picking it up for anybody who's interested. It's five bucks for the digital edition. And I'm sure that we will come back to it later in the year in future episodes to, to pick other stories as well. Thanks so much for listening, readers. As always, we probably did not talk about all of the stories in the world today. If you have any stories you feel like we should have talked about or things we should have said about the stories that we did talk about. You can hit us up on Twitter at Storyological, which is story like the thing we just read. Oh, like, OMG, that is a giant... I don't know, wait, where am I going with that? Uh, uh, And logical. Like an and gate. Uh, you can follow Emma on Twitter at EG Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter at Kuvols, C-U-V-O-L-S. And you, of course, you can find show notes and ridiculous gifts and amazing links to deeper conversation and things that we read or talked about or spoke about or <laughs> blabbed about or thought about at our home on the web. Storyological.com. See you next week. Happy reading. You know what I was thinking a minute ago? I was thinking Yoda is a person of color because he's green. And then I thought, well, it's deeply problematic (laughs) because he's voiced by a white man and he's based on a Japanese kind of uh, sensei. He's he's based on a Japanese teacher, a sensei, and his grammar is built around just kind of what's the word transliterating or something mm-hmm. without, you know, just transliterating. So, so no, no, I think Yoda as amazing as he is, is just a white guy in green face. <laughs>